Welcome to A Word in Season with Doug Stringer and Friends. We are so grateful for you, our listeners, and would love to get to know you more. Visit awordinseasonpodcast.org and take our two-minute survey. Once you've submitted the survey, you'll be automatically entered for a chance to receive a free gift in an upcoming drawing. But there's also a free gift for you now. By visiting awordinseasonpodcast.org, you can download a free 30-day devotional. This is our gift to you, our listeners, for all of the support you've given us over the last 121 episodes. Today, we're going to join Doug on this Transforming Leadership series with John Beckett of Beckett Corp. These two gentlemen are about to discuss faith, ministry, and the workplace, and how you can be successful without selling your soul. Now let's welcome Doug. We're so excited to have uh, John Beckett on with us today as our guest, because twice a month, at least, we try to have a transformational leadership Zoom call learning from those who have really pioneered, that have laid foundations. As we've always said, that uh, we have to build on foundations that have already been laid, on a sacrifice that's made and the price that has been paid. And of course, add that in in our Christian world, the prayers that have been laid as well for us to be able to build upon. I had the privilege of meeting John uh, and getting to know him better. I always knew who he was uh, at more of a distance, but in I think it was 2007, John, we were part of the 150-year anniversary of the Jeremiah Lamphere revivals in uh, New York City, and uh, really enjoyed to hearing from you and seeing your continued passion, and that after all these years, and being one of the founders of the Intercessors for America, being a successful businessman, manufacturer, that your passion for God had not waned. I want to go into a little bit about how we met and and uh, your involvement at the 150-year anniversary of the great 1857 revivals in New York. That At that time, we had 32 or 33 million people in America. We have 10 times that now, but a, a huge percentage, nearly 10% of the population of America were impacted during that time and, uh, and came to Christ. So, John, how did you get involved in, in that particular uh, gathering, the 150-year anniversary? I was having a conversation with Bill Bright, maybe two or three years before that anniversary, Dr. Bright, is, as I'm sure you would know, uh, founded Campus Crusade for Christ along with his wife, Fonette. And we were talking about Jeremiah Lamp for your, uh, 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 a name that may not be so widely known. And uh, Dr. Bright, just out of the blue, said, there ought to be a statue to that man. <laughs> well, it went in one ear and out the other. Uh, until maybe a year and a half later, as we were approaching that 150th anniversary, and, and, and his words came back to me, and I just thought, well, we can do something about that. <laughs> and it set me on a journey to uh, find and begin working with uh, uh, a, a sculptor. Uh, the person I worked with was Lincoln Fox from Colorado, and he, he studied up on Lamphere, as I did. Out of that, we developed a very handsome statue of Jeremiah Lamphere sitting on a bench toward one side of the bench. Uh, and his hand was extended. Would you sit down next to me so we can we can chat? We called it invitation to prayer. Well, we we, we were able to locate that 
outside the American Bible S uh, Study headquarters on Broadway in New York. Uh, just an incredible location because there's so much foot traffic by there. And literally over the next decade, there had to be millions of people who walked by that statue and uh, a significant percentage wandered over, picked up a brochure to read about why somebody would be uh, dedicating a statue to somebody who started a prayer movement. And I think that in itself had a ripple effect uh, 150 years later in a, uh, in, a, in a city that has a low population of professing believers, but uh, hunger. And so it, it became uh, catalytic in ways that were just kind of unusual. <laughs> well, it's, it's interesting how what may seem insignificant situations or moments to some have a rippling effect and a deeper effect and a wider effect than, than may seem at the moment. And, and I still talk to people uh, in New York City in that region, others that were part it still has impacted them. And now, of course, so many more are teaching about that revival of 1857. And, you know, today there's been a lot of restructuring or renaming using usage of verbiage that has been stolen from scripture, so to speak, but it's, it's means something totally different today. But even uh, with that, uh, we look at the word social justice today, meanings are so much different than what we mean by them. But the evangelical social justice movement actually, as we would know it, came out of that 1857 revival when Salvation Army came to New York and, of course, the, the New York City mission. And so it wasn't about just trying to do good works that become dead works. It really was about a gospel presentation of the tangibility of Christ. As John R. Mott, who was a Nobel Peace Prize winner in the 1940s, understood what it meant. He said that uh, evangelism without social work is deficient, but social work without evangelism is impotent. And I think that today the word social justice means so many different things. We have to clarify what we mean by that. And so there's uh, conversations going on. I know you were saying you wanted to interview me about that because we had talked about that. Well, Doug, what you're doing is a marvelous thing. And thank you for uh, one of the things that occurs to me is that you're continually uh, creating. <laughs> you're, uh, you're, you're looking for ways to be relevant in what's a very rapidly shifting uh, media environment. And uh, what you're doing today may not be so relevant a year from now or two, but we have to season what we've got at the, at the moment, right? Absolutely. I would just say that there's so much confusion today about what biblical justice looks like, and we just touched on it. You're the you're the person, um, but to sort it out in this arena where there are so there where there's so much misunderstanding, humorous slash serious thought when Doug and I were chatting was that his voice on this topic is really an important voice right now because there's just so much craziness out there, and Doug represents somebody who's thought it through, does it right. I, I think we all understand the importance of showing the valid model as a way of discerning the invalid model. How do you see the, the, the digression from what was understood then to where we are today? 
Well, you're, you're jumping into a large topic and I don't profess to have great expertise in it, but I think what, uh, what we what we would all understand is that there's a biblical mandate actually for um, for justice, and uh, I don't I won't try to unpack that here. But we would all understand that part of being a believer is to act uh, act justly, and uh, I think we do that on behalf of those who are defenseless and helpless, and, and many other applications of the the biblical. Uh, idea of justice. Well, um, there have been deviations from that in our society. Uh, and, and, and Doug, I like to think of the importance of the root when it comes to these questions. So in the one case, you have what we're describing as biblical justice. Well, what would the alternative to that be? And it would be a kind of justice that is that is secular in nature. It, it's actually devoid of a divine root. And whenever we see that occur, whether it's justice or, or any number of other things, we have to step back and ask, uh, is the representation accurate or, or isn't it? It's not to say that there can't be a sound application of justice that isn't directly linked to the Bible. But uh, if it strays from the biblical concepts, then it becomes suspect. And uh, we have to examine it closely. We have uh, a whole system of justice in our nation, for example, that ultimately derives from biblical ideas. Uh, it may not be acknowledged for that as it's applied in our courts, say, but it really is, uh, and uh, so people who, who, who study this uh, carefully are able to trace um, valid justice, even in our society, to biblical concepts. And John, you know, when we talked before, because so many people have a high regard for you in, in the circles that, that many of us walk in, um, but your primary vocation has been in business, although you've been very intentionally engaged in prayer movements and in the biblical social justice uh, avenues and and really a, a spokesman on what it means to really bring the Lord, even in your writings, uh, to work on Mondays. You know, uh, what do you do on Mondays? Well, you have a great book on that as well and other books that you've written. So if if your primary function or vocation has been business, how have you integrated these things? And I remember you said something to me the other day that um, that even in your early dilemma, share a little bit about your early story about how you felt you were supposed to go to Bible school or seminary and go into ministry, a vocational ministry, but God had called you to, to vocational uh, work in the business community. Well, it really was an inflection point, Doug, because um, I felt that I was wired for a career in, in business. I actually studied engineering in, in undergraduate school and for a while worked in uh, the space field. Um, and uh, when I really came to grips with the Lord, one of the, the, one of the early questions was, what does this mean? And I, that's a very valid question for any of us to ask. If we have an encounter, is this a 
pivot point or is it a continuation of what we've known? And so I wrestled with the, the question because, uh, and, and we're, we're, we're in the mid 1960s, quite a few years ago, but there wasn't a template uh, that I knew of for people who were serious about their faith and who were active in the business world. And so I felt I needed direction. And uh, I, uh, it was one of my early experiences in serious prayer to say, what, what does this mean? <laughs> and uh, there wasn't an instant answer. But when I uh, felt that I did receive an answer, uh, I, I, I remember the words almost as clearly as if they had been spoken five minutes ago. And that was, John, I've called you to business. I want you to do it with all your heart. Well, that so encouraged me in that field of endeavor because I somehow in my mind, I had bifurcated the world uh, into that which was righteous and unrighteous and holy and unholy. We know that dichotomy that actually goes back to a Greek model. But I didn't think it was possible to really follow the Lord in what we would call a secular career like that. And so it it really took a kind of revelation. Uh, it took a, a breakthrough where I could understand that uh, I, I could serve him in the marketplace. So it actually released me with a tremendous amount of energy and enthusiasm to see what I could do to integrate these two worlds, uh, to, to, to have my biblical faith be relevant in my work world. So if I hadn't gone through that wrestling match, I probably wouldn't have, uh, have continued in business with the same level of conviction that these needed to be one world. They needed to be tied together and not separate. And so that began really a, a, a career-long journey of bringing the world of work and the world of faith into, into one. And John, that brings me into another point here, because for those who don't know, uh, John, uh, when he, and he alluded to earlier that he knew what he had had a heart to do and trying to somehow, with, with the different buckets of involvement, how he was able to understand that was his platform by which God was giving him, but it also opened up the platform for so many other things that he's been involved in. And, uh, and God knew better than, than we do. God's ways are much higher than our ways. And many of you may not know that, uh, unless you read the bio earlier, that John is a graduate from MIT. So he's obviously very wired with, with thinking like an engineer and thinking very uh, methodically, thinking through the details. And in fact, uh, John, your business that you have uh, been president of and now serve as chairman of uh, has employees in 13 different facilities around the world. Tell us a little bit about how you got involved in business and, and where you've taken that and how God's used that as a platform for so many other things that you're involved in. Well, I like to think that my dad did the really heavy lifting because he started it literally in the basement of our home in 1937, which by the way, was during the Great Depression. So a lot of kudos to his pioneering spirit. I, I became involved in, in 1963, and we were small. We had um, about 12 employees in our 
workforce, but we had an established product in the in the home heating industry. But um, we we didn't have much of an, an identity in our marketplace. And so I envisioned working with him for a decade at least, and he'd be my mentor, I'd be his understudy. And uh, that all came to a screeching halt. <laughs> Just a year over, we began working together. Uh, and he, he actually died, um, slumped over the steering wheel of his car, uh, the victim of a heart attack he was, as he was driving to work. So he was 67, I was 26. And uh, that, uh, that really rocked my world. <laughs> and um, so I, I, in a way, I had to go back and revisit the whole premise of sustaining the family business. I had encouragement, including from my mother, to do so. And uh, we we're just kind of getting our, our, our feet back under us. And uh, <laughs> then our plant caught on fire. <laughs> Yeah, uh, uh, an announcement that came to us at two in the morning. I thought it was a bad dream, but uh, I, I got out to our company to find it engulfed in flames and, um, and, and just about destroyed. So that those two events in 1965 really challenged the whole premise of being called and, and operating a successful business. But it's also where we saw God's grace evident in some remarkable ways. One of the most dramatic was that uh, after that fire, we did not miss a single shipment to our customers through some kind of miracle because our machinery was burned, wires were burned, aluminum castings were melted into puddles on the floor, and somehow we we rallied together. And I, I saw the faithfulness of God in, in that, Doug, in ways that would fall right in with miracles that we've seen in other categories. And so um, I, I think uh, sustaining those two setbacks in a way helped you use the term platform, but in a way it was a, a platform for what became some pretty extraordinary uh, growth uh, over the ensuing years. Um, so yeah, we're in 13 different locations, uh, several countries around the world. We have about a thousand employees instead of 12. <laughs> and uh, hopefully we've been able to bring the concepts of the kingdom of God into the workplace in a consistent manner, whether it's been in Asia or Europe, different locations in Europe or, or different locations in North America. But it's been a it's been a desire of ours to just say what we believe is central has broad application regardless of the culture that you're working in. That's amazing. You know, and there's two points I want to ask you here because uh, your first book you wrote was called Loving Monday: Succeeding in Business Without Selling Your Soul. Wow, because we see so many people, even in the marketplace, that it, no one sets out to fail. Uh, be it in pastoring or in ministry or business or whatever we no one sets out to say I can't wait to fail but uh, somehow those who succeed like yourself and others that we've talked to have found some parameters and values that you've been able to build upon that have helped you work you through those difficult times and how you can succeed in business without selling your soul and and I was going to ask you a question and we can go on later, but you actually answered one of those questions by sharing what happened after the fire, losing your father, 
that you know how many of us as Christians, uh, when we go through difficulties, can look back of how we've overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony, and how we've gone through maybe unexpected detours, but even through those times, God is with us. Would you just share a little bit about uh, about your first book, and then we'll go into your second book, but also add in there how beyond those moments, how even through the growth process, unexpected detours, you've been able to keep your focus fixed on the Lord, keep your faith, and keep your values. I might just say as an overlay that challenges are part of life, and there isn't a person who doesn't know that firsthand, and yet how we view those challenges can be pretty important, and they're never easy. We're all going through some now, if we're honest about it. <laughs> and so I've come to understand what Jesus meant. I think it's John 16, 33, where he, he said, in this world, you'll have trouble. But be of good cheer. <laughs> I've overcome the world. That the, There's your, your, your word, overcome. And then, of course, that's picked up in the book of Revelation. They overcame him. Uh, by the blood of the lamb and by the by the word of their testimony. And so there's a process in life that involves overcoming the, the, the word that you've used, Doug. And as much as we don't enjoy these challenging times, they're they're not only part of life, but I think they're part of God's design. I once heard a person say that the pathway to success is guarded by problems that can only be solved by people who are walking in faith and in the Holy Spirit. So that idea that you know success is actually safeguarded by problems encourages us that as we meet these challenges, we can overcome them. Well, we had been functioning for several decades in this endeavor to bring faith and work together. And we were contacted by ABC News at, at the national level. And they wanted to do a story on our company and, and how we were doing this. And I'd had some unfortunate experiences with, with media and I was reluctant, but for varieties of reasons, we said, yes, we'll, we'll do this. Well, that resulted in a four-minute news piece that aired um, World News Tonight with Peter Jennings, which was, uh, the, I think there were 12 million people in their audience. <laughs> it was interesting because the network had more positive feedback from that four-minute broadcast than anything in the history of the evening news. Wow. And uh, it just, it it was it was amazing in its own right, but that's what prompted me to uh, to begin the writing effort because I just realized there were multitudes of people who wanted to have meaning from their work and from their life. They were in the workplace, uh, but they wanted to be contributing in ways that were more than just collecting and cashing a paycheck. So that's what launched that whole endeavor. And in the course of writing, um, I learned a lot more about myself and my own history, but also about the, the template that we can see in the scriptures for how the world of faith and the world of work are not really differentiated from each other. They, they're, they're joined at the hip. That's right. 
So that brought you into writing the, the book Loving Monday, and then you wrote Mastering Monday. So I think it's important for people to understand that you can, because they're not exclusive from one another, you can have faith in the workplace. And, and you've exhibited that. You know, we have a lot of language to it now. Uh, people have talked about it, written about it. But I, I'm always curious to find out those like yourself who've been pioneers, who've kind of paved the way for others to benefit from, you know, what brought you to that point and what's the context of that, those two books? The, the, the second book that I wrote was called Mastering Monday, and, and, and it was a period of some seven or eight years in between. And during that period of time, a, a, a movement emerged. Uh, which is still very all-encompassing in many parts of the world today, this, this world of trying to bring faith and work together. To, one little example, I'm part of a CEO network of some 200 people who probably account for 8 to 10 million uh, employees with leadership of a couple hundred people. So there's, there's a lot of leverage in this if the leadership of the CEO can get it right. So this movement emerged in my concern and, and really the driving force be, behind writing the second book was that I was concerned that we could end up being uh, an inch deep and a mile wide when it came to understanding the biblical underpinnings of this. And what, what fascinated me about the scriptures in this regard is how many examples there were uh, throughout both the Old and the New Testament of people we looked up, we look up to for their faith, but really had a strong identity in the workplace that we tend to overlook. We see them for their spiritual endeavors, and I'm thinking of you know Joseph and Daniel and David could go on and on. Uh, but each of them had a significant what we would call business engagement uh, as a as an important part of their identity. And even the Lord himself, I mean, <laughs> for the three years that he was uh, an itinerant rabbi, uh, he probably had five or six that he was a carpenter. And, and how, did that, uh, how did that inform how he functioned as a rabbi? And probably a lot. I mean, if we look at the examples that he cited, you know, a sore went out to sow, or if we look at the the pool of people that he drew his closest associates from, they were all in the marketplace. And so he just had a, a real comfort level with what we would call business and commerce today. And, and, and that really formed the core group of people around him and, and even his messaging. Uh, so in, in my book, I've tried to help us see people who we've come to know, uh, the Nehemiahs of the world, uh, as very skilled practitioners with sound business principles, and we can learn from them. When you uh, began to become, at least in the eyes of the marketplace and the business world, becoming successful, higher visibility, there's some practical things to juggle through because now demands on you have increased and, uh, and on your team. And of course, writing books has created another demand. And so you have so many buckets that you're involved in, including being on the, you know, uh, the founding of Intercessors for America. And you were very close to Derek Prince, who's been a great Bible teacher and influenced on many of us. And of course, uh, you're still on the board of Crew, formerly known as Campus Crusade for Christ. And 
there's so many things you're involved in. How do you, in a practical way, with all the responsibilities as a father, as a husband, as, a, as an employer, as a business leader, add all these other things when you don't know, time is such a valuable asset and it's, a, it's our greatest commodity. And yet, how do you juggle all of that and still be able to be such an impact influencer uh, beyond your personal life? Well, when you describe all that, I I wonder myself. <laughs> I, I was fussing about this a while back because, as you said, time is such a precious commodity. And I felt the Lord say something to me. Um, John, I've given you exactly the amount of time you need to do what I want you to do. And that really helped free me to, first of all, know that he was watching over <laughs> the days and the hours and the minutes, but also that it helped free me from things that were not part of what I should be taking responsibility for. Having said that, though, Doug, it, 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 it's always been a, a balancing act for as many decades as I can remember. I guess, you know, maybe I've been either helped or cursed by having a type A personality. In fact, I said to my wife, if if you'd looked at my birth certificate, it would have been on there somewhere that this is a type A guy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so I, I, I do like to be engaged and I have a pretty high energy level, but still that can that can weigh against us. We ultimately we have to be sensitive to what the Lord is saying in terms of how we allocate our, our time and our energies. Um, and there really is a, a trade-off. Well, one of the other things that helps free me is yeah, none of us, I don't think, uh, like to say no. I don't like to say no. But when I say no to something that isn't central, it isn't primary, part of the rationale, I think, is that there's somebody else uh, out there <laughs> for whom that assignment really is correct. And I don't want to interfere with, you know, God's overall tapestry of who he wants to put where. So when I went on the board of, of uh, Campus Crusade, as it was at the time, which was 16 years ago, I knew that in doing that, I would be precluding a number of other things because it's a very, as you know, it's a very large complex ministry with 20,000 people associated with it around the world and a very large budget. And, and it's very complex. So I knew that I was making choices there that would preclude other choices. And so I, I didn't take that casually. I actually took a few months to, uh, to, to pray about it uh, when I was given the invitation and, and finally sensed uh, that it was the right thing to do. And, and I've tried to give my very best to that now over that period of time. But these are decisions that we have to make. And, and, and I'm just... I'm so grateful to God that he he's the master scheduler. I mean, he knows what we can do and what we can't do. And I also have noticed that that he'll allow leverage in situations where our contribution may seem small to us, but it's something that moves a large rock or it, it moves something along. And, and, that, and that's God's way. Uh, he, he just knows how to amplify small things. Quite a few years ago, I wrote an article for some magazines. It was called New Generation of Leadership Transference, Leaving a Lasting Legacy. Uh, can you speak to legacy? Because uh, the importance of generational blessings. Uh, you received blessings from your father, your parents, and 
you're leaving that legacy to your children. You're leaving that legacy to others. And, and the rest of us who've gotten to know you, read your materials, heard of your story, been around you, we are beneficiaries of that. Now, there's different degrees of relationship, but yet we all are beneficiaries. Like, like all of us have become beneficiaries of the teachings of Derek Prince or Leonard Ravenhill or Alan Redpath or the history of things we've read about. We are beneficiaries of that. We're beneficiaries of the scriptures. And something I, that I've observed and even talking to you is that you're a person that was, though you were, your primary vocation was in business, you're a man who loves God's word. You love, you're a man of prayer. You're a man of his presence. And yet you're also a man who believes in purpose and in in being a tangible expression of the gospel. So when you think about even the boards that you have served on and helped found, like Intercessors for America, the Board of Crew, uh, all these different entities you've been involved in are all interconnected. It's not one that is separate from the other. They're all interconnected because it comes out of prayer, presence, and purpose. So how do you take that? I guess that's two points. One is those seem to be uh, non-negotiables for you. And secondly, um, how do you leave a legacy beyond what you've already done? What is your thought process on leaving a lasting legacy for the next generation? Well, it's, it's, a, it's a great question and I don't mean to dodge it, but in a way, I feel that the proper way to think about this is to do all that we can in our service to the Lord and what remains, uh, and I don't mean to be trite about it, but it, it is his business. <laughs> I, I, um, I'm, I'm struck by what the Apostle Paul said in the book of Acts about David, we would know David is an incredible person on so many fronts, but when he was being <laughs> eulogized, if you will, by the great apostle, he, he said um, that uh, David served the purposes of God in his generation, and then he fell asleep. And I thought, you know, what, <laughs> what, what, a, what a remarkable way to summarize a person's life to say that he served God's purposes in his generation, recognizing that uh, there is a, a, a legacy, Doug, and I don't mean to diminish that at all, but diminishing the, the legacy is kind of an outflow rather than an intention. I guess I would say that. I believe the strongest, like, and this ties back into maybe where some comments you made at the beginning, but I, I don't know any stronger legacy. That, that we can leave than, um, than finishing well. And, and, and the, the reason I put it that way is that you see examples. I think your, your percentage from another author was 70% who, who are on the path of life. Uh, they're doing well and something happens. And what happens actually is a destruction of that legacy. There is a tarnish that will last. Uh, it certainly affects the next generation and their family. It affects people around them. And so how we live carefully without getting entrapped in things that can take us down, 
probably is the is, is the greatest aspect of legacy that I think is under our control. You know, other things are are beyond our control in many ways, but if we can if we can stay faithful to the end, I don't know that there's anything more that we can give our children, our grandchildren, our uh, employees, our community, <laughs> than a life of faithfulness. And uh, and yet it's not it's not easy. There are a lot of exit ramps on the pathway of life, and we just have to be <laughs> very careful that we don't slide on to one or more of those. I know that um, the late Dr. Edwin Lewis Cole, who had an influence in my life, Leonard Ravenhill had a personal influence in my life, David Wilkerson, some others, um, to name a few. But uh, Dr. Edwin Lewis Cole uh, had wrote in a, an endorsement in one of my earlier books, but it also had taught us that time like light makes things manifest. Given enough time, the true character of an individual is made known. And I think that time has proven the message that you're sharing, not just in the business success, but also in your family, uh, in the legacy of, of prayer movements, uh, uh, in the mission of the gospel, all those things interconnected by you being faithful to what God had given you uh, in the business vocation, but also that it has been a blessing to the rest of these missions of prayer, presence, and purpose, and the sharing of the gospel. One of the things that uh, I know we had talked about internally in your own company, you started as part of a uh, succession and leadership development, you started a cohort and um, on leadership development to what makes a successful leader. And, and that uh, is a practical way, I think, within some of the organizations, businesses, uh, ministries that are involved that will be listening to these and watching this, um, how they can do that internally to create an environment for people to be able to succeed with that, the things that God has given you, you know, experience, life experience, um, every life experience can become a life lesson uh, if we learn from those experiences, and it is a part of our lifelong message, and so what are you doing with your leadership development that maybe we can glean from and maybe implement some of the things that we're doing? A driving force behind the initiative that you're referring to, um, and I guess this isn't a tale out of school, but I, I found in my service to crew that they did not have an intentional process of building succession, uh, at least one that was clearly identifying and bringing along the most capable people for future leadership. And I thought, well, you know, maybe this is happening in our own companies. And so working with our CEOs, uh, we identified a cohort of 12 people. And I began working with them last fall uh, in a series of get-togethers every two weeks to talk about what leadership looks like. And it wasn't you know, an MBA on steroids, it was things that I've learned out of my own experience. For example, the importance of questions, the importance of listening, uh, the importance of thinking long-term, some of these basic things that will always distinguish the people who are able leaders. 
And so we did a lot of reading. We, uh, our, our theme was conversations and leadership. So it was very conversational. But the idea was to help build sinew and build strength uh, so that when the call came, these people would be better equipped than they would have been without this to, to, to go to the next step. It's interesting, Doug. I came across a quote a number of years ago by by uh, A.B. Simpson, and it's it's relevant to this whole theme. And I'll just read it so I get it right. God is always at work preparing his heroes, and when the opportunity is right, he puts them in position in an instant. He works so fast; the world wonders where where they came from. And I think that's a good way to look at leadership development. It, it, the, the, the overarching view is that God is always at work in our lives and in situations. And if we can see that piece by piece, challenge by challenge, idea by idea, relationship by relationship, he's working in us. He's like the, the, the master sculptor. And and he's preparing us for something. This is where your word purpose becomes so relevant. He's, he's moving us towards something. And our goal is to, our goal is to be equipped, is, is to be as ready as we can be, but to recognize that, that he's working. And then when he moves, uh, just as Simpson said, it can be breathtakingly fast. Uh, <laughs> we look back and we say, oh, this is what he was doing here and here and here. Now he has a new assignment for us. And uh, I think that's an exciting way to think about leadership and to prepare for the future. Uh, it's equipping ourselves. And so my goal here was to, was, to, was to help equip as best I could people who really had a desire to learn and grow and, and had good capacity for leadership. Can you just take a moment to share a little bit more about finishing strong and finishing well? I, I guess... The jury is always out on this question until the final <laughs> toll, the final bell is rung. And I, 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 I would say, first of all, Doug, that we, we should never be presumptuous about the whole matter of how we finish because um, the world is filled with treachery. And I believe it's disproportionately meted out to those who are most visible in leadership. The devil just isn't fair. And uh, if he can take down somebody as, I don't have to cite names here, but we would know, uh, high profile people who have had a huge influence in ministry then the repercussions of that are so widespread, both within the Christian circles and, and, and beyond. It's a way that the, the enemy wants to reduce the stature of, of, of the whole Christian faith. And so we never want to be presumptuous. We, we, when we look at somebody who's fallen, our first response should be there, but for the grace of God, go I. And so there's a, there, there's, there needs to be a, not only a care, but a humility to how we lead our lives, knowing 
that were one bad decision away from from blowing it all. <laughs> and so um, people who have finished strong, and I think of Billy Graham, Dr. Bright, others, if you read their stories, they've set up guardrails that are intentional, knowing that it's in the moment of weakness that uh, they can be most vulnerable. I was listening to a testimony of Josh McDowell the other day, and he's people in, in, in this degree of visibility are, are probably always being targeted. <laughs> Who knows the motives? But he was he was saying that he was speaking somewhere and he went to his hotel room and there was a girl in the shower in his hotel room. It was a setup. And fortunately, he had put the boundaries around who he'd be with, his traveling companions, uh, the use of, of um, people to, to safeguard his coming and going. And so he, he, inter he intercepted it by God's grace because the intent was that somebody would photograph Josh McDowell and an undressed woman. And, and you, you never can unwind <laughs> that sort of a, a story once it, it's out in the media. Wise enough to, to put these guardrails in place. So, Doug, uh, it, it's, uh, it's a day-by-day exercise of caution. I, I will say there is nothing more important in the way of safeguarding our lives than, than being in the Word in a serious way. Uh, I, that means daily. That means uh, laboring in the Word. It means understanding the Word because there is no greater safeguard to life than knowing God's Word and then knowing that ultimately we, we need to walk in the fear of the Lord fear in the sense that we would all understand. That is our ultimate safeguard. You know, we can have rules and regulations, but to me, the ultimate safeguard is the fear of the Lord. And, and if we can have the attitude, I would never consciously want to do anything that would dishonor the Lord. And if we're serious about that, then I, I think it's probably our strongest catalyst to finishing strong. Do you think that influences like uh, even Derek Prince and A.B. Simpson and Bob Mumford, so many others, initially, uh, those were good parameters of discipleship and personal accountability that I know for me, in my youth, in the arrogance of my youth, the pride of my youth, even the things we were doing in, in life and ministry when I was in the business world, and but it's easy for pride to get in and you think that you're beyond any vulnerability. But when I began to realize the, the reality of the frailty of my humanity and realize that I, I was vulnerable, then I was able to look at honestly setting parameters and, uh, and core values and non-negotiables that doesn't guarantee we would never fail, but it's helped me uh, because when because pressure magnifies. So in those situations, we respond based on what we've already prepared ourselves to do you know, a friend of mine who considers me a spiritual father, he's a chaplain for, the, uh, for, for an NBA team. His brother is a president of another NBA team. And he says in basketball or any sport, you throughout the week, you practice over and over and over the same shot, the same, the same layup, the same three-pointer, et cetera, et cetera, so that in the game, you don't have to think about it. It's instinctive. 
And I think that's true of when I consider looking at uh, those we've had on our transformational leadership series, men like you, uh, others that we'll be having on, that you have set disciplines in your life that have become a part of who you are, that have helped to walk out those values that you have spoken of. And uh, so I think that staying in the word, staying in prayer, staying in fellowship with God creates that kind of culture environment so that when things do happen, it's less likely to respond according to the flesh and now respond by the spirit. And so anyway, setting parameters and being uh, setting non-negotiables and values for ourselves is helpful, I believe. And what do you think about that? Have you been able to do that uh, intentionally or is that something you just learned instinctively? Well, it's probably both. You know, the, the human nature doesn't like to constrain itself voluntarily, right? <laughs> Any more than the athlete you mentioned wants to go out and, and spend two hours on the, on the court going through discipline and exercises. And, and, and so these things need to be viewed for their ultimate benefit and not the inconvenience of having to, to follow these disciplines. I, the scripture says it directly, you know, no, no discipline is, is pleasant at the moment, but uh, it's, it's essential for the, the building of the soul. And so in addition to the disciplines, which can be viewed as kind of external, uh, the, the, the greatest discipline at all, I, of all, I think, is, is, is feeding our spirit. Uh, I was just reading this morning, uh, Jesus talking to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and they were concerned about some of the external practices that his disciples were following, and, and Jesus took them on, as he always did. And he said, what really counts is what comes out of a person. It's, it's not the external working in, it's the internal working out. And uh, so we have... <laughs> Good counsel, of course, in the scriptures to focus on those things that 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 we want to avoid, right? They're very evident in scripture too. But the things that 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 we want to generate, uh, the fruit of the spirit, would be an example of that. If if we see those things happening in good measure, you know, love, joy, peace, etc., uh, it, it it's a it's an indicator uh, that our lives are properly properly synced up with with the Lord because we, we have a good outflow occurring, <laughs> and and that's I think that's measurable. We can't always see it in ourselves, but when the fruit of the Spirit is occurring, uh, it'll be evident to others and to ourselves. Just as though, just as the opposite can be evident too. Well, John, uh, to be sensitive to your time, um, I could go on up. I spent quite a bit of time with you on the phone last week, and I thought, wow, I could sit here and listen and glean, because I want to be a lifelong learner, and uh, we have a Lord. saying in our ministry that that if we think that we are beyond being a disciple in training, we abdicate our capacity to be an ambassador for Christ and a, a leader, and so thank you for teaching us. Thank you for your life example, and thank you for the resources you've provided, like your book, Loving Monday succeeding in business without set, uh, without selling your soul and also mastering Mo Monday, a practical guide to integrating faith and work. And so I would encourage everyone to, to get those. So would you pray for us, John? We thank you for your life example. We thank you for your consistency. And we thank you for your testimony in your life. 
Would you pray for us? Yeah, thank you. Well, I, I just pick up on the theme of this series, transforming leadership, and think of it in terms of how each of us is on a path in which we want to be transformed internally so that we can lead effectively, but then also to think of the ultimate purpose of leadership, which is to help other people, and that the right kind of leadership can transform not just us, but the the, the people that you've called us to serve. And uh, we, we thank you for this series, Lord. We, th we thank you for uh, those who care enough about their own walk with Christ and their own impact on others that they would carve out time to be part of this, to be uh, part of a podcast. And I would just pray, Father, that, that there would be words of life in what uh, has been shared here, um, that uh, you would kindle those ideas that are relevant and applicable. Maybe some need to be set aside as irrelevant. That's fine, too. But we're all on the journey of life, and um, we just thank you for what you do through the people we meet, the books we read, to uh, help us in that journey in ways that our lives can be can can truly be fruitful. Thank you for Doug. Thank you for his team, and we thank you for the 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 remarkable, quiet but steady outreach that is transforming other people uh, along the way. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 We hope you enjoyed this episode of A Word in Season with Doug Stringer and Friends and ask you to prayerfully consider supporting the ministry at somebodycares.org or by texting your donation amount to 805-422-7348. Please join us again for A Word in Season with Doug Stringer and Friends.